I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. National Comprehensive Cancer Network in October will release a new tool designed to help doctors understand the value of different cancer therapies by taking into account the cost of treatments. The effort from the influential group follows similar initiatives by Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and the American Society of Clinical Oncology. We spoke to Bob Carlson, CEO of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, about the rising cost of cancer care, the new tool and what impact it will likely have on drug pricing in the future. Bob, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network, your alliance of 26 cancer centers, is preparing to make available a tool that will help doctors determine the cost and benefits of cancer therapies. Before we discuss the tool itself, perhaps we can begin with the problem it's trying to address. We've had great advances in cancer care. It's been an area of of innovation, but what's happened to the cost of care? Well, the costs of uh, cancer care are uh, rapidly uh, increasing, uh, and it's uh, across the board. But one of the major sources of the the, uh, increase in cancer care costs relates to uh, the systemic therapies, the, the drugs and biologic agents that are used to fight cancer. Well, what's driven the the rising prices of cancer drugs, and have those increases been justified? Well, I'm I'm not someone who sets drug prices, and so I can't tell you exactly what has driven uh, those increases in in expense. Um, I think some of it relates to uh, smaller populations of patients uh, being appropriate for specific uh, agents. Some of it relates to the expenses of uh, developing drugs and showing uh, that they have benefit. Um, And I think that part of the expense of drugs uh, relates to uh, what many of us would interpret as relatively high profit margins uh, among the pharmaceutical industry. How how big a shift would you say we're seeing in in doctors starting to weigh the cost of therapies and making decisions about treatment options? I think we're seeing a a dramatic shift in awareness among physicians, especially oncologists and hematologists, about the expense of, uh, of agents. Uh, many physicians who have been silent on this issue in the past are now stepping up to the plate and, and talking publicly about the, the difficulties of uh, expensive, uh, expensive agents. And some of that comes from uh, hematologists and oncologists having patients who have had to declare bankruptcy uh, because of uh, expenses of, of care. Uh, patients who decline uh, therapy uh, because they don't want to bankrupt their families or they don't think that the the benefits of a specific therapy over a less expensive alternative are are worth it. Cancer drugs represent a a big business. It's a a $100 billion business globally. The pharmaceutical industry has been defensive about its pricing and, and not surprisingly protective of it. Have you heard from the industry at all as you get ready to implement your tool? Uh, we have. 
uh, we've heard from uh, multiple of our stakeholders, uh, including industry. Um, and industry does have concerns about uh, us including uh, cost of uh, therapy uh, as you know, one of our measures in our guidelines. What kinds of things are they expressing to you? Um, many of them are, are, are quite legitimate concerns, and, and one is that um, we are using an estimate of cost uh, provided by uh, experts from our uh, guidelines panels. Um, it's not an economic uh, calculation uh, or an actuary calculation of, of what the you know, actual dollar cost would be, uh, and they have concerns about that. Uh, and also importantly, um, with the payer environment in the United States with multiple different payers uh, and with multiple different contracts uh, for uh, insurance programs within each of those individual payers, uh, it's often very, very difficult to come up with uh, what the what the costs would be to different stakeholders. So, for instance, there's there's a cost of care to society uh, that would include loss of uh, opportunity for work uh, and that sort of thing, potentially from from a, a treatment. Uh, there's a cost to the insurance company uh, for for payment, uh, and then there is, of course, the cost that the patient would be expected to pay, which is typically uh, in a Patient in the United States with an insurance program would be as a relatively small fraction uh, of the overall payment that a, that a payer would typically make. So as you go through this process of implementing the tool, is there some type of comment period you're going through where you're taking into account various feedback from stakeholders? So the NCCN uh, has a process. Our guidelines are updated um, on an ongoing, essentially continuous basis. And so we, we don't, as an organization, have a specific month or two months or whatever, a sort of a comment period uh, as we develop our, uh, our guidelines and, and recommendations. Rather, we, we really have a continuous ongoing comment period where we continually interact with our stakeholder groups. Uh, we continually meet with them. We continually uh, accept uh, input uh, from our multiple different stakeholder groups. And those inputs are then considered uh, by both the headquarters group as well as by the individual uh, guidelines panel. So anyone, literally anyone, can go to our website uh, and can submit a, a request for uh, a modification in any of our guidelines uh, or make a comment about uh, any of our guidelines. Uh, and at least as those comments and requests relate to the drugs and biologic agents, 100% of those comments are made publicly available on our website, and when a panel reviews those comments and makes a determination based upon those comments, uh, the panel's deliberations, the rationale for uh, making whatever decision they made, uh, and whether or not the guideline was modified and how, how it was modified are also publicly reported and available. Um, so we really have a continuous feedback process uh, and participatory process uh, from essentially all of our major stakeholder groups. A, a number of other groups have sought to develop tools to take into account the cost effectiveness of cancer therapies. Sloan Kettering notably put this debate front and center in the case of the cancer drug Zaltrap a few years ago. The, they have since developed a tool. ASCO has been working on a tool to help doctors determine the cost effectiveness of therapies. How will your tool work in any sense how it might differ from these other efforts? So, um, 
first of all, our tool is what the, the NCCN's core product and service is a family of clinical practice guidelines uh, that are developed by 49 different guidelines panels. Uh, and these clinical practice guidelines outline uh, based upon evidence when evidence when high level evidence is available and based upon lower level evidence when high level evidence isn't available, uh, what the various uh, options of treatment uh, of uh, cancer are. And our guidelines differ from almost all others in that they they span the continuum of care. so they they include uh, risk assessment for for the major cancers, um, screening, diagnosis, uh, early therapy of early stage disease, therapy of late stage disease, uh, survivorship uh, uh, course, and if uh, patients uh, end, uh, approach the end of life related to cancer, uh, palliative care and, and end of life care. Um, across that spectrum, there are multiple different decision points, and our guidelines panels uh, establish what we call the category of evidence with each of those decision points. And what that means is that a Category 1 recommendation is based upon high-level evidence with uniform consensus of our expert panelists. Uh, a 2A recommendation is based upon lower-level evidence, but uniform consensus of recommendation is correct. 2B are those situations based upon lower-level evidence where there's less uniform consensus among our panels that the recommendation panelists that the recommendation is correct. And then category three, where there is major disagreement among the panelists about whether the recommendation is appropriate. And each of our guidelines has that designation for each of the recommendations. What we have heard from numerous stakeholders, though, is that that sort of granularity of the rationale for a recommendation is really not adequate. Uh, and they have requested that we annotate our guidelines to provide additional information about the rationale for a recommendation. In, in terms of doing that, we have developed a program that we call our evidence blocks that really look at five different measures that we think are important in each of the recommendations. The first is uh, a measure of efficacy. How effective is the specific intervention that's being recommended uh, in controlling the disease? The second is that of safety. How safe is the intervention? What kind of side effects are associated with the intervention? Uh, the third is the, the quality and the quantity of scientific evidence uh, that supports the recommendation. The fourth is the consistency of that evidence. Does the evidence consistently come up with the same answer, same recommendation, or is there inconsistency among the studies that are available? And then the fifth measure is that of affordability, that of cost um, uh, of the therapy. And each of those five measures is scored on a scale of one to five. <clears throat> and then uh, those five measures on the scale of one to five are then displayed graphically in uh, what looks like a five by five table uh, that, that we call our evidence block. And we've done it in a graphical form because it's a lot of evidence to display uh, at once and to process. And we have found that if we display the evidence graphically, that the users can much more efficiently scan multiple different options and see how the various options uh, relate one to another. Our, our tool is different than some of the others in that we don't have an equation that where we make a, where we come up with a numerical recommendation um, that sort of is a one number, uh, fits all patients. Rather, we provide the individual uh, measures that allow physicians and, and most importantly, empowers patients 
to utilize their own value systems and how they weigh those different considerations, effectiveness versus uh, safety, for instance, or you know how they weigh cost uh, in, in the equation. So, so we try to provide information to the, to the users of the guideline so that they can make their own value judgments based upon their own value systems and scale in terms of how they would rank or rate uh, the different options of therapy. In putting together the evidence box, are you relying on clinical trials data or real-world data? It's, it's actually both. Um, we use clinical trials data, especially if the clinical trials are high quality and randomized, um, and if the clinical trials apply to the patient population that's being discussed and the, you know, the appropriate clinical context. Um, the reality is that only about six or so, six percent of the recommendations or the treatment decisions that a medical oncologist, hematologist uh, are required to make in everyday practice are based upon high-level evidence. So if, if we limited ourselves only to those situations where high-level high evidence is available, we would not be able to provide <clears throat> much assistance to providers or patients as they, as they go through the, the continuum of care. So in those situations where there isn't high-level evidence, we, we depend upon lower-level evidence. And in some circumstances, that's the only evidence that's available is clinical experience. Um, our, our panels are populated by people who are recognized experts within the specific disease and who see that sort of patient and that sort of disease all of the time in their, in their daily life. Um, and, and that allows us to, to make recommendations based upon actual clinical experience in those circumstances where there isn't good, good evidence available. I, I mentioned the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is an alliance of 26 cancer centers, but I, I don't think that really conveys its influence. Can you give some sense of the number of doctors that turn to your guidelines and, and how widely you expect your tool to be used? So um, the, the NCCN is, is, as you mentioned, an alliance of 26 major academic cancer centers in the U.S. Uh, all of them are, are currently designated, uh, NCI-designated uh, cancer centers. Um, we provide uh, access to our guidelines uh, free of cost uh, from our website. Uh, we have uh, almost 7 million downloads of our guidelines from our website on an annual basis. Uh, we have about 600,000 uh, registered users uh, on our website. Um, about half of those users are from the United States. About half are uh, outside the United States. Um, so our, our guidelines are, are heavily accessed, they're, they're heavily used. Um, our guidelines are used by multiple payers uh, to make coverage decisions uh, within the field of oncology. So our, our drugs and biologics uh, recommendations are, for instance, used by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services um, in making coverage decisions. Uh, United Healthcare utilizes our uh, our guidelines in making coverage decisions, and, and most other payers or pathway systems use our, our guidelines uh, for coverage decisions either directly or indirectly. Um, we also have patient versions of our guidelines, uh, selected of our guidelines that are our professional guidelines translated into everyday English uh, for patients. Uh, and those are also quite popular and are downloaded very, very frequently and can be downloaded free of cost from our website as well. Um, so our guidelines are arguably the most widely used guidelines in, uh, in medicine in the world, um, and we're very proud of that, and, 
the usage uh, continues to increase with time. So we think that the, the guidelines that are, are populated with these evidence blocks will be widely available and will very, very likely be extremely widely used uh, by healthcare providers and patients within the area of cancer. Part of what's driving this effort is to use evidence to make better decisions about care and to give patient therapies that are most likely to provide them benefit. Part of this is also to contain the cost of cancer therapies. We talked a bit about the drivers of cost earlier in this conversation, but does your solution suggest, what does your solution suggest in terms of cost drivers? Is it that we haven't paid enough attention to cost? Well, I think that the first the first effort uh, and first step in starting to manage cost is to have some transparency so that we actually know uh, what we're paying for and about how much we're paying for that benefit or for that service. And so this really is an, is an effort to have some transparency. Um, it's, it's really interesting. There, there is no new information in a real sense that's contained within the evidence block as it relates to affordability. The payers know what they're paying for a, a given clinical circumstance uh, uh, that their patients are within. Um, the pharmaceutical industry knows extraordinarily well um, what, what, what they are being paid for a specific agent and what their profit margin looks like uh, uh, and, and, and so forth. That's their, that's their fundamental business. So they know those things very, very well. And to some extent, physicians understand what their patients are actually paying or, or what the, the services that they're, that they're uh, prescribing and so forth. They have a sense of what those, what those costs are. The people that are really out of the out of the loop in terms of this are the patients. Um, you know, most patients feel like uh, when they're deciding how to, to make decisions in cancer care, it's like going to a grocery store with no price tags on anything, um, or a restaurant that has no prices on the menu. Um, so, you know, they they might have a very very vague or general sense, but they really don't know. Uh, what the expenses of their or the expense of the, their treatment decisions really are. So we're trying to add transparency to that, and it's a very global transparency. You know, it's, it's, you know, on a scale of one to five, it's not a dollar amount that we'll be associating with any of these therapies. Is this is this therapy an inexpensive therapy, or is this therapy extremely expensive therapy? Um, so it's an effort to add transparency to get those conversations started, and so patients who who are cost-sensitive uh, can help to identify those therapies that are likely to be an issue for them. Um, and of course, patients, because it's not an equation, we're just providing measures. If a patient is in a circumstance where cost is not important to them, either because they, they themselves have uh, substantial personal resources or because they know that their payer is going to cover everything at a very high level, uh, then, then they can choose to ignore cost in their own value equation, if you will. But it's, tra it's transparency and empowering patients with information that are the, the driving force behind these evidence blocks. So as you look at your own efforts and, and the efforts of others doing similar things, what do you expect the various impacts are going to be on drug pricing? My expectation is that the, the impact will either be no impact or with time a decrease in drug costs as uh, patients and, and society becomes better aware of what the, the real costs of providing medical care are. 
Um, I would be very surprised if providing cost transparency drives the cost of care up. I guess it could, but I would expect that, that would be my least expected outcome. Bob Carlson, CEO of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Bob, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.